Welcome to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Our show is all about the exciting world of real estate, and in particular, how it relates to the lucrative New York market. But if you're not planning a real estate transaction in New York, we still have plenty of information that you can use no matter where you are. Now, here's your host, Vince Rocco. Good morning, everybody. It is Tuesday, December 2nd, and you are listening to Good Morning New York here on the Voice America Radio Network. I'm your host, Vince Rocco, and we are coming to you live once again from Blast Off Studios in Times Square. Uh, we have a full house today here in the studio, and I wanted to get started with a couple of news items, and then we'll introduce our featured guest and our panel members as usual. Uh, in the news this week, Kyle Blockman, one of the city's elite luxury brokers and the holder of the distinction of New York City's priciest closed sale, has jumped to Urban Compass from Brown Harris Stevens. This, according to The Real Deal. Blockman brokered the $88 million sale of Citigroup chairman Sandy Wiles penthouse at 15 Central Park West in 2002 a deal that is still New York City's priciest closed apartment sale. He has closed about $1 billion in sales since 2003, according to Brown Harris, uh, and his departure is their highest profile exit of the decade. Renelle Zellweger sold her East Hampton Beach mansion for well over $4.45 million asking price and in less than a month. Once it was learned who the house belonged to, it went into a bidding war. The closing price was a quarter of a million dollars over the asking price, this according to the New York Post. The home is located at 30 Egypt Lane in the desirable south of the highway area. It's not the house that's so valuable. It's the land, according to the the Post. NewYorkTimes.com last week released an updated version of its real estate app for iOS devices. This update delivers the latest award-winning real estate news and search experience from the New York Times, designed and formatted for optimal use on the iPhone. In its first major redesign since it launched in 2007, the new real estate app combines the best real estate articles with the week's most desirable properties on the market – chosen by the Times editors and a continuously updated news stream paired with the ability to search for homes for sale or rent. And on Thursday of this week, my guest today, Amir Karaji, Karangi, got it, got it, founder of The Real Deal, will be moderating the luxury uh, living, the future of the five-star market. The panel discussion will take place at MEMA, 460 West 42nd Street, and we're going to ask him about that in just a few minutes. But he is an Iranian-American publisher and film producer who founded the business magazine The Real Deal. It's about real estate and financial news. He also produced the PBS documentary Building Stories about architect Costas Kondalis. He was born in Tehran, Iran, received a BA in journalism and foreign policy from Boston University. After graduate studies at Emerson, he moved to New York City in 1999. Amir, good morning, and thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. So it's just, you know, what comes to mind for me is, you know, do you have memories uh, from living in Iran as a child with your family before you came here? And by the way, how old were you when you came to the United States? I came, by the time I got here, I was eight years old. Eight. Yeah. It took, it took me about a year to get here. We had to go to a lot of different places. It was the largest modern exodus in history. <laughs> so you had six million people leaving uh, Iran all at the same time, and you know, in a population of twenty-six million. So, you know, a good portion of the population just had to leave or get executed. So you came here to the East Coast. Uh, yeah. After some travel, we ended up in Washington D.C. Gotcha. And so you went to school uh, at Boston. Um, what was that about? Uh, well, my brother was going to school uh, at Harvard, and he really wanted me to go to school near him. And I was in Paris at the time, 
And uh, he said, you know, you should come to school in Boston. There's like 60 of them. You could pick one and uh, we'll be <laughs> near each other. 70 of them. Yeah, yeah. right. By now. So I, then I ended up in Boston and it was a great little town. Got me ready for New York. Journal, <laughs> journalism and foreign policy, interesting combination. Obviously, you know, uh, you are currently working in, in uh, the journalism field. But what was it about journalism that was intriguing to you? From a foreign land, new to this country, grow up here. But what what about journalism, you know, intrigued you enough to want to make it a career at some point? Well, when I went into journalism, I thought it was creative writing. And then I went in there and then, you know, they're teaching you headlines about dog bites man, man bites dog. <laughs> and uh, I sort of got stuck into it. And uh, that was it. I really were – I was really drawn to the fact that you could write something and influence, you know, thousands of pe- people if not millions I thought the same thing uh, way back when I was considering a journalism um, a degree and it was for the same reason. I think you can kind of write stuff. You can influence people. You can put you know interesting information out there and become the source. I've always been taught if you can become the source uh, or the go-to person or the person who's got the most information with regard to any topic you're writing about, you know, that, that's not a bad thing. But, you know, you moved to Baja, Mexico, which is interesting to me also, to where you actually started your publishing career. So from Boston University and on to Mexico – when Tell I first uh, graduated, I really wanted to work at the Boston Globe. You know, you, you had of that. Of course. Uh, I was a young person who was only familiar with Boston at that time, and I wanted to work for the biggest paper there, and I couldn't get a job there at all. So I thought that I would start my own newspaper <laughs> at 22, <laughs> and I went to California to start a newspaper. I had to put together a proposal in my last semester of college. And I went to all these banks trying to get funding and everybody was like, you know, you're a kid, go get some experience and then come back. And I was sort of uh, adamant about, uh, you know, trying to start a publication. So I went to Mexico because I thought printing would be cheaper there. And it turned out that printing was a lot more expensive. But then there were all these expats that uh, lived in Mexico, in Baja uh, specifically. And uh, so I decided to start a paper there. I Ended up printing in California, actually, and taking it down to Baja. Was it was it a mainstream mainstream uh, local newspaper? Was it specific to, to particular topics? What kind of publication was it? It was. They didn't have anything. The expats in Baja didn't have anything. So you had, uh, you know, about ninety thousand people, Americans living right below the border. And uh, more than 80% of them didn't speak any Spanish at all. So basically all I did was uh, translate uh, local Spanish news and the stuff that were happening and uh, reporting on other news that I thought would be interesting to these people and uh, just translating it for them. And how long did you do that? I did that for about a year. And then my printer, who always wanted to write a a restaurant review, ended up buying it for me. (laughs) And she still has it going on. Bought the publication. Yeah. And she still has it going on. Interesting. Wow. And is it the same uh, content? Except it's a lot bigger. And uh, (laughs) this was like, you know, 15 years ago or longer. Unbelievable. So tell us about your film producing um, career now. So you, you come back from Mexico. And, and you get into film producing. Well, actually, a documentary about a famous architect, or as we call him, star architects, Costas Condolas. What interested you enough to want to profile him or actually even get into that end of the Well, the there, is a, there is a huge gap there. So when I came back, I worked for Yahoo, and then I ended up uh, you know, go, starting The Real Deal. And then 10 years after I started The Real Deal, I, uh, somebody told me, have, have you heard of this architect, Costas Condolas? And I was like, yeah, the name sounds familiar, but you know, nothing special. 
And he said that, uh, well, this uh, his Yuval Greenblatt, I'm sure you guys have worked with him from sure. uh, Douglas Elliman. And he said, well, this guy has uh, designed more uh, buildings in New York City than anybody else in history. So I had my research department search it, and, you know, Rosario Candela, Emery Roth, these guys have all done about 50 buildings in the city and, you know, some magnificent structures. But uh, Costas has done 86 high-rises in New York City, which nobody even comes close to. I mean, Richard Meyer has only done one. Right. You know, Frank Gehry has uh, done two. Right. Uh, so, uh, you know, I was fascinated by him and I went to meet him and he was like this handsome Greek architect and uh, he totally got it. He was driving around the Ferrari, <laughs> you know, really the embodiment of what you think an architect should be. And, uh, you know, I was like, he's really interesting. And we decided to do a 10-minute uh, clip on him but then it turned out to be a much longer thing and uh, PBS immediately jumped on it and they uh, partnered up with us. Yeah, so um with regard to the other famous architects that you mentioned, I mean he does this Custis does stand out but um what what about him or his designs? Why did he get to do so many more buildings than, you know, some of the others? I mean because the others are fantastic in in their own right, but Custis does and he still, you know, uh comes out with uh, incredible architecture or design. You know, why is he the one who's who's the more popular, I would say? Well, you know, as as good as anyone Vince that uh, land in New York City is extremely expensive. When developers uh, get, actually get their hands on a piece of land, they can't afford to take any chances, right? So uh, they go to the person who actually gets it. And the person who gets it is the person who actually has had a lot of practice building and developing and designing in New York City. In New York, you can't just you know uh, get a piece of land and say, hey, wouldn't this – a big fountain look great in the middle of it. You know, you, uh, people are trying to, there's a lot of money involved, billions of dollars in some cases, and people are trying to maximize what they can get out of this piece of land. And uh, when you have, uh, you know, those kind of uh, wagers going on, you can't take any chances and you go to the p- person who actually gets it and knows how to do this. And Costas really figured it out. I mean, from 2000 to 2008, he designed 65 buildings. And that's unheard of in Manhattan. It's unheard of and it's incredible. And that's why I ask because he does stand out from just the statistics alone and what he's done. He's, he's quite amazing. Let's talk about the real deal because, you know, uh, I'm, I'm in this business about third, almost 14 years. And I remember, <clears throat> if I can even remember life in real estate without the real deal. But there was a time when real deal didn't exist. And all of a sudden, uh, it's there. Uh, and it's the most informative, in my opinion, or was at the time, still is. But I'm thinking back to the early days. How did this this industry here in New York survive without the real deal? I, I always, and, and why did you what, – what, what was the concept in your mind and why did you bring this to, to market? I always wondered the same thing. I mean I got into real estate completely by happenstance. I, I bought a property in uh, Prospect Heights before Prospect Heights was what it was, what it is. And uh, you know, I went to sell it because I lost my job at Yahoo and I found out that the property had tripled and I was like, this is not bad. <laughs> and uh, so I went and bought two more properties with the money and within like two months, I flipped them. And then I got into this pattern of like just flipping apartments, you know, within uh, two, three years. And I was like, this is really great. And I was constantly looking for data and information and I couldn't find anything. The New York Times was using their obit writers to, uh, you know, write real estate stories. And uh, the Wall Street Journal had only one person for the entire country writing about real estate. And uh, I thought, how great would it be if, uh, you know, 
this is the second wealthiest industry in New York after finance, which is to say it's the second richest in the entire country. So how great would it be for these guys to have their own uh, medium? You know, uh, Wall Street has dozens of publications serving in and real estate had zero. I mean, they had some publications, but it was mostly press releases. It was very fluffy. There wasn't much news to it. So uh, out of my apartment, I I put aside, I did this one deal and I took that money and I said, I'll use this money to do four issues of the real deal out of my apartment. Out of your apartment in Brooklyn. We're going to hold you right there. We have to take a break, but we will come back and finish that thought. Don't go away. You're listening to Good Morning New York on the Voice America Network. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody. We're back with Amir Karungi from uh, The Real Deal's founder and CEO. So, Amir, you were telling us about starting... Uh, the magazine, the publication from your living room in Brooklyn, the first four um, issues coming out of that space. What were the early days like? Uh, technically, it was the dining room. The so dining I, room, okay. So I had turned. Makes uh, better sense. I took my dining room table and turned it to the side, pushed it up against the uh, wall. I got a fax machine, a scanner, and an office chair, and I was in business. And I started, uh, you know, just every day I had a list of phone calls that I had to make. And people weren't, uh, in 2003, email wasn't as uh, prevalent as it is today. So uh, it was a lot of phone calls, a lot of meetings. And it was, you know, in the beginning, it was very discouraging because people were like, how are you going to find this much content about real estate? Like there's not this much news about real because I pitched it to big publishing houses after I put out the first um, issue. Uh, and they were like, there's not enough news about real estate. And, I, you know, it kept going and going. And uh, it was very discouraging until, uh, you know, I got sued by, uh, you know, the people who own uh, New York Magazine and they own a bunch of other publications. And I was like, maybe we're onto something. <laughs> and the New York Post was writing about it and stuff like that. So well, I wanted to ask you about that. Actually, it was one of my questions because <clears throat> I remember when the magazine, the publication came out, I, I thought the same thing. There isn't enough news to write about. Every week, and when I started this program, this radio program, it was the same thing. People would say to me, "But how could you, you know, sustain a program once a week and talk about New York real estate basically only?" And I thought the same thing. I said, "Well, you know, I don't know, but I have to tell you something. Just like you discovered, you know, there is plenty of news that comes out every week, every day, 
in this business. So you oh, can absolutely. Yeah. you can certainly do that. But you also have competition. What I wanted to ask you is why do you stand out and you do stand out above the the crowd out there of other publications? Mm-hmm. What is it about the real deal that is, you know, premier? Well, I had a background in journalism and that was always very important for me. And I always said, you know, I rather, you know, go out of business than to sort of uh, lose the integrity of the content that we provide. And New York is a very sophisticated uh, city. People appreciate good content. They get it. And uh, we decided to provide that for them and they immediately adopted it. You know, within uh, – it's been almost uh, 13 years now or 12 years now and, uh, uh, you know, it's only grown in audience. And talking about the lack of news uh, for the real estate market, you know, we post 32 stories a day on our website. You know, it's the largest real estate website in the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get more traffic on our website, therealdeal.com, than the Wall Street Journal's uh, real estate section gets. In fact, they send us their stories Absolutely. so that we could link to them because they know we have more interested readers in their stories than uh, they actually have people going to uh, their website for. Uh, you said in an article last year that bringing greater transparency to the market and making it a level playing field for everyone is the goal. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, well uh, one of the reasons I think the recession happened in 2008 was because uh, the media was so soft on what was happening. They were just talking about the record, the records that were being broken and the amount of transactions that were happening. And they weren't really digging into what uh, was really happening, which is what caused the recession to happen. Because when it actually happened, when those uh, mortgage-backed uh, securities actually collapsed, nobody knew what they were. I mean, when they, when they were actually flying high, nobody knew what they were except the people who were really benefiting from them. But when they collapsed, the media didn't know how to react to it. It took months before people were starting to explain what actually you know, mortgage-backed securities were. So I felt like you know, we were sort of uh, slacking in that, not only us, but everybody. And uh, I feel like by creating transparency, by asking the hard questions uh, and getting the right answers, you created transparency for the whole market. What is the future of the real deal? I mean, obviously, you've passed the 10-year mark. You're successful. You're out there, as I said, number one, <clears throat> really, in my opinion, with no competition. What's next for the real deal? Where do you go from here? Well, you know, we're also in South Florida because that's uh, – some people believe it's the sixth borough of New York. Uh, but, <laughs> you know uh, – That it is. <laughs> but we're also looking at going into other cities. But we were always very careful about doing that because, you know, we are always looking for – journalists who are interested in real estate. You know, people, when they go to journalism school, they're not thinking, I'm going to get out and, you know, write the greatest real estate story ever. Uh, you know, they think they're going to do Watergate. So it's uh, hard to get people to who are really great journalists to come and write about uh, real estate news. It, it, it's very difficult. But what about, you mentioned Miami, um, but what about Los Angeles? Any thoughts to uh, Absolutely. the marketplace out there? Yeah, that's uh, where we get the third highest traffic we get from uh, L.A., surprisingly. So we're definitely looking to go uh, out to Los Angeles, and we constantly get people from there telling us you should come here. So it's interesting because this program is 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 a hit here <clears> in New York, <throat> number one in New York out of all their pro- Voice America's programs. But I'm hearing, you know, uh, Los Angeles, California, the state of California is like right behind us. Yeah. So something's going on in L.A. or in California with regard to real estate in general, or or the the focus on New York real estate. Anyway, um, this month you were honored as the Child's Champion Award recipient for Ronald McDonald House. I know you're a huge champion of children with cancer. Talk about that a little bit because I think that's remarkable. Well, you know, you know, in New York they're handing out these awards all the time and they're basically handing them out to people who they think can raise a lot of money for them. And uh, – 
you know, I, I always sort of, if I'm not 100% involved in the project, I say, well, you know, you, you should pick somebody else. There's so many other people you could get to help you raise money. But then uh, my friend Eric Anton, who uh, suggested that you have to go and walk through this, uh, the Ronald McDonald House. And uh, so he forced me to go up there and he promised me a steak at the Arlington Club. So I went all the way to the Upper East Side. <laughs> and we... Uh, you, I looked at the place. I saw what these guys were doing and I saw all the volunteers and I was absolutely moved. And I saw all these kids because I don't know, a lot of people don't know what the Ronald McDonald House is. It, it provides housing for families whose kids have to come to New York, in this case, New York, to uh, get cancer treatment. And these kids recover 60% faster when their families are around naturally. So uh, the Ronald McDonald House provides housing for those poor kids whose families can't afford to be here to actually you know, be by their kids while they're going through cancer treatment. And I thought it was a worthwhile cause. And uh, you know, it's really awkward when you call people and ask them for money. But when you believe in the cause, you feel like, come on, you can't take it with you. You have the money. Donate. Donate. And then we ended up raising – our goal was 100000 We ended up raising $140,000 for them you know, over cocktails. And that goes to – over cocktails and something. Yeah. And that goes directly to the families of the children it or go, to the Ronald McDonald House it, that supports. It goes to the Ronald McDonald House to provide uh, you know, these rooms for, uh, for right. the families. How, how does one – one, one thing – a lot of people don't know this either, but the Ronald McDonald House <clears> is not supported by McDonald's. They don't get a single penny from correct. the franchises or the corporation. So you know, they, it started in the 70s, but they kept the name, and, uh, but they raised all their own money. That's interesting. Um, how, how do families get to – it, it reminds me of St. Luke's uh, you know, in the South uh, Children's Hospital right. uh, where they provide – all cost they take they relieve all cost for for families and no one pays anything down there so how how do families get to come to Ronald McDonald House here in New York do you have to apply because i'm assuming that the the list would be endless of people wanting to come here just because of what it is and what it's done i i was uh, really interested to see how the money was moved so i asked them all these questions as well and uh basically they work with Sloan Kettering they work with uh Mount Sinai and a lot of other places around the city that provide cancer treatment for kids. And they have them uh, suggest some names. So Sloan Kettering would be like, we have a great candidate. They're coming from, you know, uh, wherever, from Hungary. And, uh, you know, he's a great candidate, but we can't afford to bring his family over. And then the Ronald McDonald House will review them and see if they're a right fit for the house. And then they'll bring them over. But, you know, they can only take 80 families. I was going to ask you how many. It's 80 yeah. families? It's about 80 or more uh, families. Some, some families stay for a week, but some families are there for months. Right. If, if one wanted to, because I think it's a very interesting story here and a very human story, if anybody wanted to volunteer or get involved with uh, the Ronald McDonald House, how do they do that? You know, I posted this thing on uh, my Facebook page and surprisingly uh, had so many people wanting to volunteer. I didn't uh, realize People had so much time to volunteer, but all these people came out. They were like, I'll do it. And uh, the house, in fact, this morning before I got here, the director of the house uh, sent me an email thanking me and uh, saying that, you know, that this was as valuable as uh, all the money that we raised, you know, the volunteers. Yeah, no, I, I would imagine so. But, you know, when it comes to children and especially children who are sick. I, I think it, it touches people in, in different ways. I would love to. Uh, and when I was reading the stuff this week about you, I was saying to myself, I would like to get more involved 
as well, because you know, from a human perspective, you know, what's what's better than that? You know, no, it's great satisfaction. It's great satisfaction. I, I feel like uh, I feel a little guilty, you know, when I took the award that you know I, I'm not a volunteer there, and I feel like the volunteers are the people who are really dedicating a lot of time. Uh, well, what you've done is beyond spectacular. I mean, you're not a volunteer, but you you've raised funds uh, to keep a, a facility, you know, uh, functioning. Um, Thank you, Vince. All very interesting stuff. You are a collector and a supporter of the arts. What specifically interests you in the arts? Oh, I like naive art. I at one naive point naive art because I I can relate to it. But uh, <laughs> I uh, but I you know at one point I thought I would be an artist, but uh, I'm not. So uh, <laughs> when I see like sort you, of, you you can you've done everything else. <laughs> Just, Eventually, uh, we did this. Uh, we had a party at Domingo Zapata's house, who's uh, this uh-huh. young, hot artist right now in New York. And uh, I met him actually. Oh yeah, yeah. He's a fun guy. He is. And uh, he, you know, he had this amazing uh, show. And one of the guests at the party ended up buying this huge piece from him, which was like several hundred thousand dollars. And he was like, you know, this uh, it's customary that when you know in, in these sort of transactions that I'm supposed to give you twenty five percent of the proceeds. I was like, no, don't worry about it. I was like, this is uh, this is great. Like, I th- I think you should uh, th- this this was meant to happen. And he was like, well, it's I don't, what should I do? I was like. Well, this is you know in my uh, in my bio it says that I'm a supporter of the arts. So this is how I support the arts. That way he can keep his fancy townhouse on Gramercy Park. You know <laughs> he really needs it. <laughs> yeah, he's he's quite a character. I met him actually through real estate. Oh, I don't know, two maybe yeah, two years ago. And he was he's a good person. Fun. Yeah, very and and very you know very talented. Uh, yeah, very yeah. very talented. And you know when you meet him, he looks like an artist would look. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's a funny person. He parties like an artist. Yeah. Uh, that he does. Where's your favorite vacation spot with all these things that you get involved with and, and do on, you know, on a daily basis? Where do you like to vacation? Well, you know, I have a house in the North Fork, so I like to go there on the weekends. Nice. But uh, I, like, I love going to Mexico. You know, I just uh, – I like the food. I like the people. And it's three and a half hours from LaGuardia. I'm heading to Tulum. I love uh, it there. It's it's unbelievable. And at the end of January, which I do every year for the past several years, and you know, it's like you go all over the place and you like lots of different places. But I absolutely look forward to that week uh, or ten days, whatever it is, yeah. in Tulum because it's almost like not being in Mexico. It's in the Caribbean. It's sort of like your own little oasis. And technically, it's a strip of beach off the mainland. So uh, you actually have to, you know, you go over a waterway yes, and then it's that beach, which is very controlled. And, and whenever I can go over that, that little waterway and you get onto what they call beach road, of course, yeah. whenever there's a beach road someplace, <laughs> it's got my interest for sure. But you're right. It, it, it's, it's interesting. You to know, people. it's only if you keep driving down on that beach road, you go through a reserve and in 20 minutes, you're in Belize. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And we've done that, you know, so it's really amazing. And the jungles on the other side of the wa- of the the road a lot going on there and the food you know i don't I, I would say i'm not a very big lover of mexican food here in new york but when you go to mexico it's all i want to eat it's the best it's clean it's it's fresh, it's, fresh. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's just amazing all right last question for you because we're running out of time what's next for you i mean you've again been involved in so many different things where do you go next you know, people always ask me what my five-year plan is, and I feel like an amateur because I, you know, I was like, five years. I like, I'm I don't trying have to, one. I'm trying to get through the, you know, winter. But uh, you know, next we're when we did this large event in uh, Miami. It was for like 4,300 people. It was a, a panel discussion discussing real estate, and uh, we met these Chinese investors there who were like, "You have to do this in China." So uh, I'm actually going to Shanghai in January to look wow. at some venues. Uh, and it's funny, I discussed it with a lot of people here. 
asking if they were supported and every one that I asked that, you know, they came in wholeheartedly. So, you know, they really want to hit that Chinese market. So we're going to do an event there probably in uh, late spring, early summer. Sounds interesting. And Amir, thank you so much for joining us today. As always, we're, we're, we run out of time, but uh, please come back again. Uh, fascinating you, story. And, Thanks for uh, having me. Have a great rest of year and, and happy holidays. We are coming back after the break. Don't go away. Our star panel is getting ready. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we're back, and thanks to Amir once again for coming into the studio and sharing that wonderful story with us. And by the way, the real deal is quite the the, the publication uh, in the New York marketplace. Uh, it's really the Bible of everything real estate. So Ivy Ray just bopped into the studio, stuck on the train. I can't go into the next chapter without discussing with you. What, so what's going on? Well, you know the bottom line. I think that those of, of our radio listening audience that aren't from New York have no clue what every day is like. So one of the things that happens... You're about to tell us, I'm sure. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Well, my question for you is, does everyone else in the world know what Uber is? Yes, and I took it this morning. Mm, Radio morning is always Uber. Uber is the way to go. So anyway, this morning I did, as I've been doing the train, and then you get on the train, you get down on the Wall Street track, you look in the morning now because the trains have been so messed up. I'll talk really quick so I don't take 20 minutes to tell my little story. You got five. I've got five. Well, we don't want to spend all five minutes on my train trip. Anyway, you get you look in the morning and see if nothing has happened on the trains, and then you've got to go ahead to take the subway. So there was nothing there. I get on the track. It's a 15-minute wait for the two. So I, this morning, so I could be here with you prior to us going on the air, was leaving exceptionally early. And then anyway, wait 15 minutes, get on, and there's two of those stops that happen where they don't talk to you and they don't open the doors at the stops. And those were 10 minutes apiece. And then, of course, it's the crawling, hot, smelly, packed train. Mm -hmm. Anyway, and then they miss the stop. We're on, if those of you that don't know New York City, we're kind of in Times Square. We're below what is Time Warner Center, that mouth of the entrance to Central Park. We're a few blocks below that. And we're at 50th Street off the train, and it just goes by 50th and lets me off at 59th. So anyway, I am here. And Vince, how was your Thanksgiving? 
It was great. It was um, <clears throat> too much food, of course, lots of rest, and I took a lot of time off, which I got back yesterday and said, okay, now back to the grind. Did you see Mom? I did. How is she? She's good. Was Jet there? Of course. Jet is, uh, for those of you that don't know, Vince's daughter. <laughs> In more ways than one. <laughs> but he, she has four legs. She's a she, she does, and with a boy's name, Jet. Don't even go there. But anyway, she – yeah, she had a great time. I was going to let you off the hook. I wasn't going to go there. Okay. Yeah. Next time. Yeah. But um, she – no, she had a good time. We all had a good time. It was nice to take some – I was telling the guys before we went on the air, it's nice to just take some some breather time, as I call it, mental health time mm. to just do – and I did literally nothing with regard to work. So it was it was perfect. Congratulations. Well, thank you. Anyway, mm. our panel is with us today. I'm going to get into some hot topics as we usually do. Deborah. Hoffman from Town Residential, Parul Brumbat from Core Group, Niall Lundgren from Dalian Realty, Ivy Ray, of course, from Blue Realty Group, and Phil Horrigan from uh, LeaseBreak.com. Uh, he was our guest last week, uh, and we liked him so much we invited him to come back again. Yay. And Yay. Anyway, so we're t- I want to talk about tipping the building staff in, in New York City. Though. Uh. So for those of us who live in doorman buildings, <laughs> and there's all kinds of extremes of sizes and shapes and, and, and amounts of people. I once lived in a building where I think the holiday card that came under the door had 65 or 70 names. <sighs> And this was a building on Central Park West. And the first Christmas I spent there, I looked at this card, and it took me about a week to process what this card was about. And I thought, well, 65 or 70, I think it was like 67 names. And I thought, well, I can go broke giving something like, you know, because I'm not cheap. And so I thought, well, this is not going to happen. And then I realized in that particular building, they were pretty smart. They would move people. There were like three doors, the front door and two side doors. Very full staff, white glove building. And they would move people from door to door to hallway to this to that. So you actually would be interacting with all 67 of these people throughout the year. So it's not like, well, I never go out the east door, so I'm not going to take care of them. Or I never go out the west door. Well, holy Jesus. What did, that, six, what did that year cost you? Oh, thousands of dollars. Thousands <laughs> of dollars. So I wanted to talk a little bit because people ask me in real estate, my clients do – Friends do every year about this time. I start getting these questions, so I thought about this the other day. Does the service? Here's a good one. Does the service at your building seem a little more top shelf lately? Oh God! Yeah. Most <laughs> likely, that's because Thanksgiving weekend marks off the kickoff of the holiday tipping season. So from Thanksgiving through Christmas, they smile, they shake your hand, they tap you on the shoulder. Good morning. It's raining. You might need your umbrella today. And I'm like, well, where were you in August? <laughs> right. So my question is, do you have to tip? The people in your building. And, uh, you know, there's a variety of answers, and, and, and please don't be shy, but do you have to tip the people in your building? Like a lot of people no. don't. You, you yeah, don't have you, to, but it's right. preferred. And, you know, I think if you don't, you'd be in the minority. Well, I, I, I agree with that. So let's talk a little bit about how, well, how do you, how do you tip? Well, what should you tip? I mean, we have some guidelines here that I'm going to go through based on a survey that Brick Underground did, but... You know, how do you figure out in your own building without giving me your personal secrets, though? But, I mean, how do you figure out how much you're giving people or, or who should get tipped and who shouldn't get tipped? And what, I, go ahead. Well, I was going to say uh, one thing I was surprised about. I asked the doorman about this once, and I always like to see their perspective. And, man, do they know who tips and who doesn't. And, oh, yeah. and they went on for five <laughs> minutes about every person in the building. And so it made me realize – 
you know, I, I got to give this some thought, yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, and I mean, I have always tipped, but I, I do think, I do think you should obviously. And it, it depends. I really think it depends on the building. And, but I, I was surprised that when I talked about numbers with him, I, I was really curious and I really kept pushing. And, you know, when you start giving between 50 and a hundred, they like that. That's, that's actually more, you know, that, that's a good tip, you know, something between 50 and a hundred. I mean, they <clears> were, in other words, I was, I was surprised how many people didn't do that. You know, and well, um, it's interesting because I agree with you. And in no matter what building I've lived in, you know, and there have been a few of them, but you know, and the and the door people, as discreet as they claim to be, they love to talk, you know, <laughs> oh, yeah. about certain things. And you're correct, Phil, about the, the the tipping situation. And you know, they practically name names or apartment numbers of the people who <laughs> stiff them. Every At my building, they do. Yeah. I know everyone that didn't take exactly. even the owners. Or it gives you five dollars, you know, in in a Christmas envelope, and then whatever. So. You know, my thinking is, you know, throughout the year, we rely on these people to help us, you know, to do whatever in the building, whether it's the super, whether it's the handyman or porter. And you don't generally tip them if they do something, you know, uh, extra special. But at the end of the year, you know, you you rely on these services. I mean, we'll talk about non-doorman buildings in a minute where that's not necessary. But in a doorman building, you choose to live in these buildings for the services that you get from time to time. So... I guess I, I have a problem when I hear that people don't like to tip and it's, it's a big, big uh, problem for these people. What, what we don't also don't realize is they don't get paid as much as you know we all think they do and they rely heavily on the tipping at the end of the year to kind of supplement the income that they are not getting. For example, you know the guideline that Brick Underground says for a super or resident manager anywhere from 75 to 175, doorman 25 to 150. I mean that's a big range. Porter handyman, 20 to 30. I think that's low. And garage attendant, 25 to 75. I mean, what are your thoughts on that, guys? I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a heavy tipper. You know, and I, I'll tell you. I mean, I give my people $100, you know, and, and <laughs> probably this year a little more. Um, well, I, but, think, you know. I think being in real estate, Vince, you know, it's important for us to be heavy tippers because, you know, <laughs> the doorman or the supers or the porters or handyman, they have all the information. So they, they know what's going on out there, right? So obviously it's important for us to take care of them. But then it goes down to not everyone's in real estate and how well do they, do they treat their, their doormans or supers. Some of the numbers they rattle off seemed about average um, and, and fair from what I, from what I understand. Um, but I always advise, you know, I, I get this question um, not too often, but when I do, it's, it, it's always important to take care of the people who work with you in your building, right? That's, that's really important because that's where you live and that's your home, and taking care of them is important. Absolutely. Niall is completely right, as are you, Vince, and I am also a pretty heavy tipper, I guess. But what's so interesting that people don't realize is not only – are the building staff people who help you out year-round? You kind of live with them, but they're also people. And people get slighted, and they may not diminish their service if you don't tip well. But I remember specifically during the recession, doormen many times know if someone's having a bad year because we chat with them, we go back and forth, and they'll understand if, let's say, you are having a bad year or you have an illness or you've been taking care of an ill parent, um, they will know, and, and most of them will understand if you're tipping a little lighter one year over another. And in addition, there's a number of buildings that I do a lot of business in, as we all do. And many times we're standing down in the lobby, we're waiting for our clients to show up or something. We're chatting with the doorman. And believe me, they will tell you, oh, you're selling that person's apartment? They were the worst tipper in the building, or they never <laughs> tipped. And they were so mean to me. Why were they mean? I don't care if they don't tip, but why were they mean? <laughs> so they do talk amongst themselves and to your brokers. 
Let me ask a question because this comes up, you know, this actually just came up. Renters, renters in a condo building. So, for example, you know, someone buys an apartment in a condo as an investment property, don't live there, rent it out. Is the renter of that apartment still obligated to tip as much as an owner in that building? You know, I think it always becomes individual, and I am agreeing with everyone. As Niall said before, I agree with everyone. Everyone that's spoken so far, I'm in complete agreement, and I also really want to agree with the fact that these people govern your happiness in New York City. If you have a great relate, this is serious. If you have a great relationship with all of the people that govern your building, the guys that come and fix your mm-hmm. light bulb, your toilet overflows at two o'clock in the morning, they are there for you. If you're kind to them, if you're sweet to them, and then of course, if you take care of them to whatever degree that you do at the end of the year, you have a much different experience in New York City because you spend a good portion of your time dealing with these people, broker or not. And so I think in, in regards to the ants, oh, they also do know if you're having a bad year. Mm-hmm. I bake them cookies. I make them sandwiches. I show up in the middle of the night. I've sung to them on Christmas Eve, you know, because I've had, I've had some, a wild ride in life and in real estate. Well, in real years. estate, it's, it's completely unexpected. Yeah, I've had some outrageous years, and when I do, I take care of everybody super well. I'm a big tipper also, but I'm also generous of self. And when I have these dialogues with people sometimes that, I mean, money talks and everybody likes it. But I think it's invaluable. So with the renters, it's just, you know, these are the people that make or break your life in these buildings. I and agree. So is it okay to dip your tip your favorite doorman more than the rest? I mean, I get that question all the time. My answer is yeah. yeah. And I'll shut up now. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I would agree with that. But what about, you know, something here? One of my doormen is a jerk and I never see my super. Why do I have to tip them? Well, I mean, you have to, but you don't have to maybe well, tip as much. Right? Well, what I've always done is send a message the same way we're doing negotiations when mm-hmm. a, you have a sale transaction and you say to your seller, yes, that bid from the buyer was really insulting. So you know what? Come down $1,000 just to show, yeah, we'll talk to you, but you're being a jerk. So it's the same thing. If you really don't get along with a doorman, I think it speaks volumes that if you give them $10 as opposed to 50 to everyone else, remember, they talk to each other. And this guy may be wondering, why am I getting so little? And one of the other doormen may actually ask you, and you say, he's never nice to me. He just stands there looking at the door when I have 20 packages and doesn't even open it. And some of them don't realize how jerky they are. And, and, so uh, <laughs> and Deborah, just to add to that, um, I think that's, that's right. But then also don't forget that sometimes your tipping could be looking into the future. So in other words, if maybe mm. that doorman is kind of a jerk – you know, sometimes it's not – I mean I, I – so I agree with Deborah said, but sometimes it's always not about what happened in the past. It's like, you know what? Let me think about my service for the next year, you know? And sometimes like even when someone just moves into a building, they always ask, should we tip the doorman? We've only been there for, for three weeks. And I say definitely because you want to yeah. think about the next 12 you months. You have to set you know? the stage for yeah. the next – right, for the next year or however long you're going to be there. I totally agree with that. We have to go to break. But just one last reminder that, you know, tipping for cleaning people, housekeepers, you know, full-time nannies if you have babysitters, dog walkers – you know, we have, you know, in New York City, we we, can't, we tend to be spoiled sometimes and we have all of these, you know, deluxe services, you know, in and out of our homes. And at the end of the year, you know, these people do look for some kind of reward for their support or for their, you know, undying attention to your household needs. And Lord knows it gets expensive. But, you know, as all of you have said, it's it's the right thing to do and it's definitely individual. We are going to break. We will come back in a few minutes. Don't go away. 
the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we're back, and we're talking to our star panel today, Deborah. Niall, Ivy, and Phil, I wanted to just talk a little bit about home security. You know, as real estate agents, real estate professionals, you know, people do, who are not familiar with New York City, ask the question sometimes, so I'm moving into a building, you know, how secure is it? So I'm moving into a non-dormant building or even in a a doorman building, it doesn't matter. You may have heard that New York City is safer than it used to be, but that doesn't mean New Yorkers are living uh, fearlessly. You know, let's be real. It's still a city. So local New Yorkers, according to Brick Underground again uh, this week, filled out a survey sharing their safety concerns and strategies. So one of the concerns was faulty locks on door buildings, front doors, where there isn't necessarily Mm. a doorman. How many times do we show up at a door when we're showing an apartment or even visiting a friend? And you kind of lean into the door and the door pushes open. Hello, security, you know, problem. <laughs> What's the thought on that? You know, um, you, then another one was uh, irrational fears go to the possibility of a building collapsing. I kind of laughed out loud on that one. How many buildings collapse, you know, in the city based, you know, on this particular survey? But, you know, faulty doors and why don't landlords pay attention to that? You know, what, what's the problem with that? Uh, I'm not quite sure I understand um, – how anyone in this town, because it's New York City or a big city, you know, can get away with not fixing a front door. Yeah, you know, I think in the in the lower end rentals and in more of the uh, neighborhoods that haven't become quite as established or are still, you know, kind of shady, you have that a lot. And I think so we have our kids living in those buildings and we have our friends' mm-hmm. kids living in those buildings and we have young adults living in those buildings. And these are real issues. I know a lot of these kids. And the front doors often don't catch well. So you have to slam it and there's a sign up to slam. I think it's one of the worst things that can happen to somebody in New York City. So if anybody's listening and you're coming to New York or you live in one of those buildings, you should do whatever you need to do to make sure that the first door where you come in that leads you into the lobby or whatever – catches. Yeah. Because, because that's, that's where people that's where a lot of it happens. And people are just, you know, mindless. They don't pay attention to silly stuff like that, silly stuff, serious stuff like that. And I watch people do this all the time. You know, I lived in a doorman building on the east side, uh, oh God, way back when, and I was on the twenty fourth floor. Get this, the twenty fourth floor doorman building, my apartment door is always locked. I came home one day and my apartment was ransacked. <gasps> 
So first yeah. time I ever got robbed in New York City, but you know, and I wasn't home, but everything that was valuable is no longer. And how did they get in? They got in through the window. And how did they do that? So was it <laughs> Spider-Man or was there they, a fire escape they, outside on your 24th, window? No, it, uh, they were um, brick, uh, pointing the bricks and there happened to be a platform like on, on the floor below me or whatever or right on my floor. I can't remember. Uh-huh. And they just kind of got the window open and came in. One oh. of them did and came out my front door. And that's when I knew something was wrong because I came home from the theater that night and I went to put the key in the door to open the door and the door just kind of pushed open. And I said – well, that's not like me to not close my door, let alone uh, not lock the door. So he came out of my front door and went down the elevator. He couldn't, um, he couldn't have locked the door. He didn't have the courtesy to lock the He didn't even door. close the door. He just, <laughs> just pulled it. He was in a mad dash hurry for sure. But my place wow. looked like something in the movies. It was pillow cushions wow. thrown all over the place. It was unbelievable. I don't know what he was looking you for. You know, Vince, just on that po- – oh, sorry. Do you want to – No, no, no. Yeah, no, no, no. I was going to say on that point, the experience – I also was robbed once and uh, the same thing. And, I, and then I just heard from a client the same thing. So uh, meaning from the back and that is something that I hear more and more. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, New York's a safe place. Inside job? Yeah. Well, uh, no. I think it's more um, – it's walk-up buildings where there's a fire oh, escape gotcha. in the back. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. what they do is they go from top of building to yes. top of building and they just go down. So people say, oh, I'm on the fourth floor of a walk-up. I don't have anything to worry about. The truth is sometimes those higher <laughs> floors do because they go from uh, rooftop to rooftop and yep. they just go down. And usually, by the way, it's during the day. They're not looking to hurt anybody. It's right. usually they want to go in there just like with your apartment, steal a few things, and That's they it. go out the front door. Right. Um, yeah, so. I, yeah, like that, that, I was robbed. I was robbed I, once. My, sorry, go ahead. I was just go going ahead, to say that um, – I was going to say that, uh, you know uh, – just for our listening audience, uh, if you are living in New York City without in, in a non-doorman building, just make sure that the window that is that is the closest to the fire escape um, and accessible to the fire escape is the one that is firmly locked or even has an iron grill on it. Because the most <clears throat> number of uh, thefts that I've heard of have been exactly in this in this manner. Um, and what these guys will do is literally go down the fire escape um, through each and every window to see if there's one that they can let themselves in. The other thing is also, um, lately, uh, I just, in fact, recently just had a friend who got robbed um, in that manner, and um, what she noted was uh, they took jewelry and other things, but they actually left all uh, Mac products, so iPads and phones were not taken uh, because uh, there's locator um, devices Uh, on most iPads, uh, and so people can get caught. So That's if a smart in burglar. the event that somebody, yeah, so if in the event somebody does get robbed and an iPad or some sort of a, you know, a tech device is stolen, um, the first thing that they may want to look into is to see if there is a locator device and, and hopefully they'll be able to catch the person. We have to get a locator device on jewelry, right? That's Tell me be about the future. it. Yeah. That's absolutely unbelievable. <laughs> a little chip put into our kids. You know, the other you know, thing I wanted to just say to, to Ivy's point before about making sure that door catches, you know, and you read about this in the newspaper all the time, unfortunately, here in the city is being followed into your building. Oh, you know, my God. And, and usually in, in later hours. Yeah, very scary. But, you know, we, we push the door closed. And be conscious and aware of it because I don't want to say that, you know, people follow people into buildings because the, the person going in is not vigilant. But you know what? They aren't. Just pay attention to the door. Close the door. And if you see somebody, you can do something. But, you know, um, it is a big city and these things do happen. I'm sorry. You know, I do. I want to go agree with Perul in that. And I guess what everybody has been saying is that the majority of break-ins happen from the back of the building or even the fire escape in the front. 
People in New York aren't going to go, oh, my God, someone's climbing up the fire, you know. But if you have windows that are accessible via rooftop is a big one. And then also, you know, with fire escapes, I highly recommend not the baby gates, but real iron gates that would be hell Mm -hmm. to get through because people break through windows all the time. So having your window locked doesn't do it. And it is the most popular form of entry. I myself have been robbed as well. And they did the same thing. Here 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 are two Two um, things you should pay attention to. If you have, if you don't rather have a doorman, and the first building rule should be, if you're in the lobby or entering the building, you don't let strangers in. I mean, it sounds uh-huh. corny, but don't let strangers in. Even if you know they happen to be friends with somebody in the building, they must wait outside until they are buzzed by their friends in the building. You just don't know. And the second rule is once you enter the building, as you said before, Ivy, you have to stand by the door until the automatic door shuts and make sure it locks when it closes because, again, these are all things that we need to do to ensure our own security, let alone the security. of You know, I sometimes think, even though I live in a doorman building, all these delivery people running around the building, you know, my neighbor says next door to me, oh, we never lock our doors. Well, why wouldn't you lock your door? Some deranged delivery person comes onto the floor for whatever reason, gets ticked off, and now he's in your living room, right? That's not going to happen in my apartment. Yeah. Yeah, like so, it take too much energy to lock the door. You might, you might as well just lock it. Yeah. Well, this is all true. But with regard to the iron gates, I find that I sell a lot of ground floor apartments that have backyards. And mm-hmm. people are concerned about this, but they also don't want these big, heavy gates on their windows, which I understand. And one thing I recommend, which a lot of people are getting, and they are not only deterrents, um, is to get a small alarm system because ADT and comparable companies for anywhere from 25 to 35 dollars a month they will alarm your windows and if you've ever heard any of those alarms go off and you hear it more uptown than downtown believe me everyone comes running and anyone who came in through a fire escape is gone and the police statistics from many of the upper east side and west side precincts will tell you that as well so sometimes you know, we don't have to go the 1979 route of putting the heavy mm-hmm. gates on, which could be kind of scary. Um, you could still live in our relatively safe city, but these alarms do work, and they're not that expensive. Yeah, and some of them, but the cheaper companies put the wiring outside. It's accessible. Like, I remember I had a house in Bedford, and we had a, a pretty extensive security system. I didn't put it in. It was there when we got there, and they cut the wire. No, that's if you do it outside. In the city, they never do. It's yeah, completely yeah, different. Know. It was interesting. Different. But I agree with you. That's a great thing, and they put a sticker on the window. But for we were spe- speaking also about kids and young adults, yeah. and that extra expense is something they maybe can't afford. So you can get the Many old big iron gates that swing, hello, that swing open and closed. So you can wake up every day and open, swing your gate open and not look at it all day and then close it and lock it with a padlock. Well, that's true. But I also think sometimes, too, with the townhouses, which a majority of the, you know, in the uptown neighborhood, even uh-huh. downtown, there are so many townhouses. And security, and I, I sold uh, two this year, but one in particular was very concerned about security. The house had a security system, but they wanted to figure out you know, uh, more ways to uh, make that house secure. So I don't think they've gotten to the gate situation, but, you know, they're upgrading the security system and making sure that at least the ground level doors are extra locked. And listen, you know, people hop over fences in the back of, of, of houses, whether they're walk-up buildings or townhouses. And, you know, you look out your window and somebody is sitting at your patio in the garden area. So it, it, it can get crazy. And yeah. you, again, it, it's vigilance and it's it's just being smart about where you live and how you want to protect your home. And also, you know, again, it's it's for the protection of your neighbors in your buildings when silly things happen like, 
you forget to lock the front door and somebody comes in and they're right behind you or you let somebody in. And I see this all the time. You know, it's like, well, who are you waiting for? Oh, well, I, my friend lives here. Well, then buzz your friend. You know, I'm not, yeah, not going to I'm with you, you on that. You know, you know not to harp on this. Said, I do want to say that, you know, I feel like this is definitely such an incredibly safe city and it has become so safe. I think especially post 9-11, I mean, you hear stories in the 90s. Um, I wasn't here then, but, you know, people talk about how you couldn't go to Madison Square Park or even Union Square was kind of a, you know, kind of a dump at the time or Times Square people clutch their purses when they're walking. And, you know, I, you know, I I think of all the times that I'm coming home at 3.30 in the morning, just kind of waltzing down any street, not even concerned for a second that something like a, is going to happen. We, so, you know, I gotta, do think that, you know, this should be taken perspective. Uh, we have we have to stop right there. I'm so sorry. Running out of time again. That's okay. Good Morning New York for this week. We're back again next week, Tuesday at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific Live on the Voice America uh, Network. For all of us at Voice America all around the world, thanks for joining me, and I will see you next time. Thanks, everybody, and have a good day. Thanks for tuning in this week. Please join us for another edition of Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco next Tuesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Here's hoping all of your transactions are successful ones. We'll be right back.